Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. There is so much we can do to make this world a kind of better, happier place. There is so much we can do to change the if you want to support It's Good to Know and the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. On this episode of Ideas That Change the World, Rabbi Friedman is in South Africa, where he spoke at the Sinai Indaba Convention. He spoke about death, dying, the soul, and the afterlife. So I'm sitting in the, the Chabad house in Minnesota, and I get a phone call from a college student. He says, I'm on my way. I need to ask you a question. And he sounds very anxious. He pulls up in front of the house, screeching to a stop, jumps out of the car, and in a panic, he says, Rabbi, am I going to hell? I said, I don't know. What have you been doing lately? He says, no, no, I'm serious. I said, why? Where is this question coming from? He was not particularly religious or observant. He says, I have a roommate on campus who's an evangelist. And he's been telling him that if he doesn't convert, he's going to go to hell. So for a couple of months, he humored him. For a couple of months, he tried to ignore him. Now it's getting to him, and he wants to know, am I going to hell? I said, why did you have to come all the way from Minneapolis to St. Paul to ask me? There's a rabbi on campus. Why didn't you ask him? He says, I did. What did the rabbi say? The rabbi said, we don't believe in hell. So I said, you don't like that answer? He says, that's not an answer. If I end up in hell, what am I going to say? My rabbi doesn't believe in this. (laughs) I don't want to know what you believe. I want to know if I'm going. Am I going or not? (laughs) Are we going to hell? Do we even know what it is? What happens after life? Is there life after death? It was a very sad story. There was a woman up in Duluth where Bob Dylan was born. She lost her husband at a very young age and they had uh, two little girls. She went into trauma, she went into therapy for many years She was doing fine, but her children had grown a little bit, and they were asking, where's daddy? She didn't know what to answer. So she's doing laundry in a laundromat, and there's a Catholic woman who she knew was doing laundry next to her, and she says, the girls are asking, where's daddy? I don't know what to tell them. So the Catholic friend said, tell them that 
Daddy is now with God. He is in paradise in heaven among the angels and so on. And she thought, wow, that's, that's beautiful. I'm going to go tell my children. But then she thought, wait a minute, that's Catholicism. So she called a rabbi in Minneapolis, which is three hours drive from Duluth. And she made an appointment to come down to see him. She came to see him and she asked him, do we believe in life after death? And he said, well, personally, I don't. My wife does. So you can believe in it or not. She was very offended. She was too polite to say anything to the rabbi, but she told her friends back in Duluth, I didn't go there to ask him his personal opinion or his wife's opinion. I wanted to know what Judaism says. She was offended that he gave her a personal opinion. And she went back to the Catholic friend and she said, tell me more. My religion doesn't know. Luckily, there was an Israeli couple there, and she spoke to them as well, and they said, you went to the wrong rabbi. We say Kaddish, we do Yisker, what do you mean we don't know? Anyway, so she came down and we had a long talk. I meet this rabbi at some convention, and I say, you know this woman from Duluth, she's really angry at you. He says, why? He said, because she came all the way down to hear what the Torah says about life after death, and you didn't give her a satisfying answer. He says, oh, these people, they all want simplistic answers. I said, why simplistic? Simple, maybe. Everybody wants simple answers, but why simplistic? He says, because there are no simple answers, you know that. In the Gemara, there are five opinions as to what happens after death. <laughs> I said, you mean we know that much about it and you couldn't tell her anything? Give her one of the five opinions. What do we know about life after death? First thing, is there life after death? It's a ridiculous question. Life is alive. Life lives. Life can't die. Just like death can't live, life can't die. Living things live. So the question, is there life after death? It's a nonsense question. Is there death after life? Can a living thing die? That's a good question. And the answer is no. No, it can't. So what happens is this. The soul that is a living being enters the body and the body borrows life from the soul. Because inherently the body is not a living thing. The soul is a living thing. And when they separate and go their own ways, what happens? The body returns to dust. From dust you are and to dust you shall return. And the soul goes back to being a soul among souls. 
You can call it heaven or you can call it hell. But you're describing the continued life of the living soul. So is there life after death? What dies is dead. What's alive lives. So what lives? What lives on? Every aspect of your life, your emotions, your memories, your relationships, your wisdom, your knowledge, your pains and your pleasures, they all live on. Because they are all aspects of life. And life only knows how to live. Life can't die. It's an oxymoron. So the question of, is there life after death? It's an unnecessary conundrum. Life lives, bodies go back to the dust. There's a beautiful poem, if I can remember it a second here, from a famous poet. Life is true, life is real, and death is not its goal. From dust you are and to dust returneth was never said about the soul. So from dust you are and to dust you return, that's the nature of the body. It is not a living thing, it goes back to being a mineral. The soul, on the other hand, always was alive and will always continue to live. So when we say Kaddish, when we say Yisker, we are in relationship with a living being that is as real, if not more real, than a body. In fact, the reason most Jews will go to Yisker and they don't go to any other tefillah, any other davening, is because the soul for whom they are saying Yisker will not allow them to stay away. Whatever strings they have to pull up there, they'll do whatever it takes to get you to say Yisker because they need it. They need your Kaddish, they need your Yisker, they need the tzedakah you give on their behalf. They're very much alive can't be otherwise. Life lives. We are told that in the future after Moshiach comes, there will be the resurrection of the dead. What is Tchiyat HaMesim? It means the resurrection of the body. The soul does not need to be resurrected. The soul will return to its resurrected body. How do you resurrect a body? in case you're interested. You know how a movie can be played backwards? And the building that comes apart, brick by brick, comes back together brick by brick? A body disintegrates. Resurrection means restructuring that same body, putting all the parts back together. When that happens, the body is now created by God, just like the bodies of Adam and Chava in Gan Eden, and therefore those bodies will never die. Unless they eat from a tree, they're not supposed to eat from it, and then the whole thing happens all over again. 
but there isn't going to be a tree the next time around. So a resurrected body doesn't have any element of death to it. So it will live forever, and its soul will come back and enjoy the, the reward of the resurrection. The Gemara has an interesting description of this. There was a lame guy and a blind guy. And they wanted to steal some fruit from an orchard. But there was a wall around the orchard. So what they did, the blind guy took the lame guy on his shoulders. The lame guy directed the blind guy to where the fruits were, and he was able to reach and steal some of the fruit. When they were caught, the judge said, who do I punish? The lame guy or the blind guy? And he decided that neither of them could have committed the crime alone. It was a combined effort. So he said, the only way to punish them properly, put the lame guy back on the blind guy's shoulders and punish them as, as a couple, as a pair. On the positive side, for every mitzvah you do, who gets the credit? Your soul or your body? The body without a soul can't do mitzvahs. A soul without a body can't do mitzvahs. So how is God going to reward you for having done mitzvahs? You can be rewarded only when you're back together again, like when you did the mitzvah. And so the resurrection simply means every soul that had been in a body and had fulfilled mitzvahs, and every soul fulfills mitzvahs, will have to come back into the body to receive its reward. What about the reward in heaven? That's just for the soul. It's not enough. So eventually, the souls in heaven will come back to their bodies on earth and receive their ultimate reward. But let's look a little bit about how this thing actually works. What is hell? A guy goes on a long journey to seek his fortune, because at home he's not making a living. So he sets sail to find some fortune elsewhere. He's shipwrecked on an island. He wakes up on the beach, and there are diamonds everywhere. He gathers them up and rushes into town and wants to buy something with these diamonds, and they laugh at him. They say, diamonds aren't worth anything here. They're all over the beach. Here, what we use for money is onions. They're scarce. So he settles into this new life, earns many onions, becomes very wealthy, multi-onionaire. <laughs> and after many years, he thinks it's time to go home. He builds himself a ship, loads it up with all of his wealth, all his onions, and sets sail for home. Getting home took over a month. By the time he gets to the harbor, the onions are getting a little 
a little odorous. He pulls in, can't wait to show his family how successful he's become. And they take one look at this cargo and they say, this thing stinks. This is horrible. What did you bring here? We don't barter in onions. Same is true with the soul. The soul comes down to earth. In heaven, it knew about diamonds. On earth, he comes down and he says, the soul says, let's do godly things. Let's amass a lot of godliness. And the body says, we don't deal in godliness here. Here we deal with tomatoes, potatoes. Soul gets used to it and eventually amasses a great wealth of onions, potatoes, tomatoes, and such. Now the soul leaves the body and goes back to being a soul, and he comes to heaven, and it smells of onions. That's hell. When a soul comes back to the world of souls and doesn't smell like a soul, that's hell. The fires of hell in which a soul burns has got to be the fire of shame. It burns with shame. It's the only, sh it's the only fire that a soul can feel. So the shame can linger for a maximum of 12 months. Being in heaven for 12 months, that smell wears off because it's only physical. How long can it last? By the end of the year, after 12 months, the soul is clean. It's a neshama among neshamas. It's now sitting in heaven. Those 12 months are basically a cleansing, refreshing process where the soul peels itself away from the memories, the sights, the smells of the physical world. We say Kaddish for 11 months because that adjustment is eased and made smoother by our Kaddish. We say it only for 11 months because we don't want to insult any soul by suggesting that it needed the entire 12-month cleansing. But just in case it did, we say 11 months. After that, the soul is at peace, comfortable in heaven. Now, some souls come back to heaven after 120 years, and it's as if they never left. That's called going straight to Gan Eden. The mourning period, which I think is very fascinating, there's the seven days, the 30 days, the year. In the seven days, the first three are more intense than the last four. Why is all that? Mourning in Torah doesn't mean feeling sad. Grief in Torah doesn't mean being in pain. The Torah tells us what the soul of the departed is going through. And we, 
being empathetic with the departed, share its experience. When it's in great pain, we grieve intensely. When it's getting more comfortable, we grieve a little less. When it has become completely comfortable, then we stop grieving. Because grief is not about us. Grief means don't let go of the soul, remain in touch, and share the soul's experience. So the Torah tells us the first three days after a soul leaves the body, that wrenching change is most intense. The next four days is a little easier. At the end of seven days, it has settled in to its experience in heaven. And that's why you are obligated to get up and put an end to the, to the Shiva. You know that famous joke about a guy who brings home a non-Jewish girl to his traditional mother, and he's very worried about her reaction. His girlfriend is an Indian. Her name is Running Deer. And he has to introduce her to his mother. He brings her home and he says, Ma, this is the woman I'm going to marry. She is Running Deer. And to his surprise, his mother was very calm. She said, hi, glad to meet you. I'm sitting Shiva. <laughs> sitting Shiva means seven days and not an hour more. Because if you start to grieve on your own, if you're not reflecting what the neshama is experiencing, this is not the real grief. This is feeling sorry for yourself, which is fine, but it's not a Jewish ritual. It's not a mitzvah anymore. At the end of 30 days, the soul has made a another step into settling into heaven. And so at the end of 30 days, we lighten our grief even more until the end of the year, and by then the soul is in heaven, what are you grieving? So it's an amazing and beautiful thing that sitting Shiva and mourning the, the, the death of a, of a loved one is really in consideration of their experience, not feeling sorry for ourselves. The Rebbe said something really emotional and, and profound one day. He said there's a custom on Pesach. When you ask the four questions, you preface it by saying, Tate, ich will bei dir fragen vier kashes. You address the questions to your father. And the tradition is that even after your father has passed away, at the Seder, you continue to say, Tate, ich will bei dir fragen vier kashes. The Rebbe became very emotional when he said this. He said, it's very painful for a soul in heaven to get back in touch with what's happening on earth. 
But when your child wants to ask you a question, then you will do everything to hear him and give him an answer. So this custom of addressing your father after he is in heaven means that it is worth whatever pain the soul has to experience to reconnect with earth in order to answer your child's question. The soul is very real. Let's describe the soul for a moment. What is a soul? What is a neshama? When God created the world, he created things that never existed. Let there be light, and there was light. It had never existed before. Let there be a firmament, a heaven, it had never existed before. The sun, the moon, the stars, the water, they're all new, never existed. A soul, a Jewish soul, is a little piece of God that always existed just as God always existed. This little piece of God is, of course, alive like God is alive. God is a living being. A little piece of him is a little piece of life. What does this soul bring with it? We know that God is kind. Chesed. The soul is capable of chesed. We know that God is all-knowing. The soul is capable of intelligence. We know that God can be strict and severe, the soul has a capacity for justice, judgment, even anger and hate. In other words, the soul has the ten faculties with which God functions as a creator. So the soul has intelligence and emotions. That's a soul. A soul can love and it can hate. It can understand and it can reason. It can be stubborn, it can be determined, it can communicate. These are the ten functions of the soul. A human soul is similar except that it's created. It's mortal. We have two souls. A godly soul with ten godly functions and a human soul with ten human functions. Now, sometimes in your own mind, you're thinking, makes perfect sense for me to do something that isn't kosher. But on the other hand, it doesn't make sense. If it's not kosher, I'm a Jew, why am I doing that? These are your two souls reasoning each in their own way. The intelligence of your godly soul, of your Jewish soul, understands things from a godly perspective. Godliness makes sense. The human soul understands things from a human perspective. Godliness doesn't make sense. 
The trick is, your godly soul must teach your human soul to appreciate what is holy and godly. That way, when the soul leaves the body at the end of 120 years, it has no foreign smell. It comes back to heaven as if it had never left. In fact, it brings with it some of the human soul's energy that has now become holy. So every time we do a mitzvah, we're getting our human soul to participate in holiness. That's called tikkun olam. When you elevate your human soul to appreciate holiness and godliness, to feel for holiness and godliness, you have elevated the physical to godliness, you've made earth into heaven. And that is the whole purpose for which the soul is willing to spend 120 years in a body on earth. Here's a beautiful analogy. A princess marries a peasant. They go to live on the farm, the peasant's farm. Peasant is very devoted to the princess. After two weeks of marriage, he notices that the princess is sad. He doesn't want to question her, thinks to himself, what could possibly make her sad? And in his peasant orientation, he assumes that what's making her sad is that there aren't enough potatoes. So he works harder and he brings home more potatoes. She's not any happier. He realizes, silly me, she doesn't like potatoes. It's tomatoes that are lacking. She's sad because there aren't enough tomatoes. So he works really hard, he brings home more tomatoes. She's not happier. So he fixes something in the house, the leak, the road. She, she's getting sadder. Finally, he loses his patience and he confronts her. He says, what is wrong with you? I've given you everything a human being can possibly want. How can you not be happy? So she says, I was raised in the palace. In the palace, we had the greatest philosophers and teachers and thinkers who came and delivered lectures. It was a pleasure. We had the greatest orchestras, the greatest musicians would come and perform. We had the most exotic plants in the royal gardens. These are the things I miss. I'm a princess. And when I see you trying to make me happy by giving me potatoes, tomatoes, and such, it makes me even sadder because I realize you have no idea what it takes to make a princess happy. That's the predicament of a godly soul in a body. The godly soul is a princess. The body is a very devoted husband, but it's a peasant. The body feels the soul's sadness. Sometimes we call it guilt, we call it conscience, we call it search for meaning, finding ourselves, really what it is. The soul is unhappy and the body is trying to please the soul. But what does a body know? The body assumes 
that potatoes, tomatoes and such will make the soul happy. And the soul becomes sadder. So what is the solution? When the princess marries the peasant, the father, the king, should send along with the princess little pieces of the palace. Some royal stuff. So that on the farm, the princess will feel somewhat at home. She'll feel like a princess. And that's what God does for us. When he sends the godly soul down to earth, he sends along with us pieces of heaven. The mitzvot, the Torah. When we do mitzvahs, we run a home according to Torah. We're importing, deporting, downporting stuff from heaven that keeps us in touch with who we really are. So that even living in the body on the farm, on earth, the soul can feel like a princess and can feel at home. That is the mystery of the soul's coming and going. That is the justification for putting a delicate, sensitive princess into a very indelicate and insensitive condition and place. But in the end, the soul will have proved itself. Every soul has a beneficial effect on its body. The body and the human soul become refined because there's a godly soul there. When you get 10 godly souls together, it generates a degree of holiness that allows us to read the Torah, to say certain prayers, it's a collection of souls, and that is an awesome amount of holiness. The Baal Shem Tov said that where there are 10 Jews in one room, angels are afraid to enter. This godliness transforms the world. We fix the world, tikkun olam, because the creator of the world has a plan. It's his world. He has a vision of what he would like it to be, and we are his agents and partners in turning the world into his kind of world, a world that pleases him, that welcomes him, so that he can have his home in the lowest of worlds. As a result of our serving God, doing mitzvot, bringing holiness and godliness to the world, the day will come when God will be one and his world will be one with him. But that's due to our efforts. So the soul yearns to go back to heaven, feels uncomfortable, encumbered by a body, but it knows its mission and it is humble enough to accept the mission. So it goes about doing mitzvot. It goes about absorbing the holiness from Torah and then sharing it with his human soul, with his body, and with the rest of the world. The soul comes into the body, not suddenly, shockingly, but in stages, in increments. Forty days before conception, the soul is told 
that it's going to be born, conceived. That's why everywhere in Torah, I don't know if you've noticed this, the angel comes to tell Sarah that she's going to have a child. What does he say? This time next year. Now we know that it doesn't take a year. It only takes nine months. Why is it always this time next year? It's because gestation is nine months. But a soul has to be given some time to adjust to the idea of being born. So it actually takes a year. So first the soul is told to get ready. The soul is not thrilled by that idea. To leave heaven? To be constricted into the limitations of a human body? To share that body with a human soul that has human demands? Not an appealing prospect. But if God says, the soul gets ready. That's the first step. Second step, of course, is conception. David HaMelech says, and this is really awesome and beautiful, David HaMelech says, my mother and father abandoned me, and God gathered me in. Ovi ve'imi azavuni. My mother and father abandoned me, and God took me in. The Gemara says, David was not bad-mouthing his parents. He wasn't kvetching. He was marveling because he remembered being conceived. What is it like? You're this tiny little being all alone because your mother and father are sleeping. So the Gemara describes it graphically. The soul looks to the father, he's sleeping. Looks to the mother, she's sleeping. And this soul is going through the most traumatic moment. It's more traumatic than birth. In birth, you just go a few inches from one place to another. This is going from zero to 60. So this tiny little thing, I don't know what it's called before it's even a fetus, is looking around to see who's in charge. Who's babysitting? And the parents are sleeping. So what reassures this conception? God's presence. He remembered being comforted by the fact that God was there when his mother and father were sleeping. In another place, in Tehillim, David says, even as I go in the valley of the shadow of death, I am not afraid, for you are with me. The Gemara says, what is this valley of the shadow of death, and why does he keep going there? Fine, you're not afraid because God is with you. Don't go there. Stay away from these places. And besides, why is David describing himself? And we have to read his experience? So the Gemara says, David is talking about every soul that was ever born. Every soul goes through the valley of the shadow of death, and that is the birth process. The valley is that blank space between life in the womb and life outside the womb. That's the valley. And it has a little danger to it, so that there's a touch of death there. 
Life in the womb is wonderful. You're taught the entire Torah. It's being in heaven. Leaving the womb is very traumatic. Living outside the womb is life again. So David HaMelech said, how did I survive the trauma of birth? It is so traumatic that it erases your memory of nine wonderful months. It would be much more traumatic if God wasn't there. So how does every fetus born into this world survive that trauma? It sees God present. God is there to see it through the experience. So the valley of the shadow of death is really the birth process. So people who have been through a near-death experience relive their own birth. It's a flashback. Every birth is a near-death experience. And what enables us to survive it? We are conscious of God being there. So every fetus born into this world has had an experience with God. So where does our faith in God come from? We can't prove it. We have no, we have no arguments. We, have, we don't need it. We remember God's presence when we needed him the most, at conception and at birth. So every near-death experience, anybody who's been through it, comes out the other end believing. Why is that? Because he's reliving and re-experiencing his own birth. You know, some, some experts say near-death experiences, people seeing themselves in a dark tunnel, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's an angel there, all white, urging you to come into the light. You get the picture? You're being born. You're going through a dark tunnel, and there's this guy dressed in white, or pale green, <laughs> urging you to come out because he doesn't want to get sued. The trauma also brings the memory of the trust and the comfort you got from God's presence. So where does Amunah come from? From having experienced God. Now when the soul leaves the body, it goes through the reverse process. It doesn't leave instantly, completely. It hovers. It doesn't want to say goodbye. So it separates from the body in stages. The moment of death, for three days, seven days, 30 days, a year. The Torah tells us this so that our own existence is expanded greatly. We know what happens even though we can't see it. We can stay in touch even though we can't see it. So our horizons are much broader and much greater. And the world needs to know these things because it's a blessing to know these things. And we, as the Jewish people, have an obligation to be a light to the nations, to share with them the knowledge that comes only from Torah. 
because we know things that can't be seen. Make sense? If you want to support It's Good to Know and the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. This is the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, changing your life for the better, one idea at a time. Like it, share it, and leave us a review. Tune in next week for more ideas that change the world. Let's change the world.